Good morning. Good to see you all. Can I return to you in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12? If you're new with us, we are working our way through Matthew's Gospel on Sunday morning. And we come to chapter 12, and this morning I'd like to read verses 33 to 37. Where the Lord Jesus said, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, in this passage, Jesus talks about, first of all, two trees. One good, the other bad. The word good is the Greek word kalos, and it's a Greek word that means in this context, good or in other words, healthy, a healthy tree. The word bad is sapros in the Greek, and in this context, that Greek word speaks of bad in the sense of a rotten or a diseased tree. So you get the imagery. These two trees bring forth two kinds of fruit, as Jesus said. The good tree brings forth a good fruit in the sense of healthy and wholesome fruit. In other words, fruit that is edible and beneficial. While the bad tree brings forth bad fruit, fruit that is rotten, unhealthy, and inedible. And then Jesus goes on to say that these two trees and the fruit that they produce correspond to two kinds of people. One person is good and the other bad. The good man, Jesus said, has a heart full, a treasury in his heart full of good things. And he demonstrates it by speaking good things. And primarily the context is truth. All right? Truth. The evil man, well, his heart is full of evil things. And he demonstrates the condition of his heart by speaking evil words. In other words, lies or untruths. Now, be careful that you don't miss the point of the passage. At a casual reading, it's easy to think that the good tree, good heart, is referring to believers in Christ, while the bad tree, bad heart, is referring to unbelievers. And you know what, guys? That's true, but it doesn't go deep enough to explain the passage. You see, when Jesus said in verse 34, brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, remember who he was talking to. This passage begins in verse 22 and runs through verse 37. And the people the Lord was talking to were the Pharisees. Now, primarily, although not exclusively, as we're going to see in a moment, the Pharisees who had accused him earlier of casting out demons and working miracles by the power of Satan. And it was in that context that Jesus talks now about the two trees and the fruit that each one produces. The Lord wasn't just comparing unbelievers, guys, to believers. He was actually comparing false teachers with true teachers. And primarily in this context, Jesus was comparing himself as one who represented and spoke truth with the Pharisees who claimed to speak for God, but who were corrupt in their hearts and spoke lies and falsehoods. It's the same idea that we saw in Matthew 7, when Jesus spoke of the broad way and the narrow way. Remember that? And at that time we said, look, the broad way isn't Mark atheism or agnosticism. 
The broad way is marked this way to God, just like the narrow way. So what you have is not unbelievers and true believers being contrasted. You have false religion and true religion being compared. False religion is a broad way, very tolerant. Uh, you can believe pretty much anything you want. It's not important what you believe they tell. It's only that you believe something. That's the broad way. Those on that road think if they even believe in heaven, they're going to heaven. Jesus said they're not. Because there's only one way that leads to heaven. It's a narrow way. Who was that way? Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And after Jesus talked about the broad way that led to destruction and the narrow way that led to everlasting life, he went right into the warning us to beware of false prophets. And at that time we said the word simply means a spokesman for God. Anybody who claims to speak for God is in that general sense a prophet. Because a prophet was one who spoke on behalf of God. You could talk about a pastor, a teacher, an evangelist, anybody who claims to represent and speak on behalf of God would be considered a prophet. He goes right though into warning them in, in chapter 7 about the dangers of false prophets. He said in verse 15 of Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. So it's the same basic idea, right? Now, if you want a, a, an in-depth explanation of those verses in chapter 7, get the CD because we really went into that in detail. The point I'm making, though, is that Jesus is borrowing from what he had already said because he's still talking to the same folks. In, in chapter 7, it was the Pharisees that were in view. In chapter 12, it's the Pharisees that were in view again. And he is warning the people back then, as well as us today, of the danger of false teachers. And of course, they're not around today, of course, so we don't have to worry about this. But you know, the danger of false teachers, sure they are. In fact, Jesus said the closer we got to his return, the more false teachers would escalate. In fact, they would even come claiming to be Messiah and so on. So Jesus is warning us of the danger of false teachers who claim to speak the truth, but in reality are corrupt in their hearts and prove it by speaking lies and putting down, listen, this is a key point, putting down those who do represent the truth who really are speaking on behalf of God. And I believe that in verse 33, the Lord turns to the crowd and demands that they decide who he is, who he is working for, and where his power is coming from. See, he has claimed to be from God, the Father. The Pharisees have just claimed he's from the devil. And in verse 33, Jesus challenges the crowd to make a decision when he said, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. The Greek word for make is a word that Jesus is using figuratively. And it means to consider, to evaluate, or to judge in the sense of making up your mind about something. So let me paraphrase what Jesus is saying, I believe. He turns to the crowd now and looks at them and says, You need to make up your minds about me once and for all. Either I'm good in doing the work of God or else I'm evil in serving the devil. 
But I can't be evil while doing good things, and I can't be good while doing evil things. I am either who I claim to be, Messiah, Son of God, sent from the Father to do His work, or I'm an imposter, a false Messiah, sent by the devil to deceive. But you need to make up your minds. The very same thing He did in Matthew 7. When He lays out the teaching on false teachers, He then presses His audience to make a decision. Any good preacher worth his salt, and Jesus was worth his salt, obviously, will lay out the case and press his hearers to make a decision. Jesus is doing the same thing here. And then I think at that point he turns back to the Pharisees and says to them in verse 34, Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? Because they just said he was from the devil. All right? He said, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. He first of all calls them brood of vipers. Now, let me just stop there and say this. Apparently, apparently the Lord had not read the book How to Win Friends and Influence People. You know, there's a, a whole segment in the church today that believes that, you know, to call out false teachers, to call them by name, and to say, look, you are teaching heresy and you are a false teacher, a false spokesman for God, is to be unloving, judgmental, harsh, critical, etc. Is that we should mollycoddle, I guess, the false prophets in the church. Jesus didn't feel that way. He called it for what it was. He said, brood of vipers. Another way of saying children of poisonous snakes. All right. Uh, yes, but what about their self-esteem? He didn't care about their self-esteem. <laughs> People's eternity was at stake. Why are we concerned about hurting the feelings of false prophets in the church? We are in the last days. The deception is ramping up every day, it seems. And Jesus said it was going to get so bad right before He came back that there would be so many false prophets and so many false Christs running around. If it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. So He calls them children of poisonous snakes. In other words, I think the Lord is turning the tables on these guys and basically calling them children of the devil. See, they said to him in verse 24 that he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, Satan, the ruler of the demons. And now he says to them in verse 34, How can truth come out of your mouths when your hearts are corrupted, seeing you are all children of the devil? It reminds me very much of a, of a heated exchange he had with these very guys, these Pharisees in John 8. I'm not going to read the, the passage. I'll paraphrase. You can read it on your own. Um, but... As we came to Matthew 12, remember we said that the resentment of the Pharisees and all towards Jesus was, had been simmering for a while and now it begins to reach a full boil? Well, in John 8 it explodes. Okay? I mean, it explodes. And they basically accuse him of being an illegitimate child. Okay? Because he, he said to them, you know, you say you guys are Abraham's children. You're not Abraham's children. If you were really Abraham's children, all right, they were technically bloodline Abraham's children. They didn't have the faith of Abraham. That was his point. If you were really Abraham's children, you would have accepted me. You would receive me. Because Abraham received God. He loved God. I came from the Father. And he told me what to say, and I'm giving you his words. But you don't want to hear the truth. You can't hear the truth. Because you're not children of Abraham. You're children of your father, the devil. Well, we're not illegitimate kids. We're our father's Abraham, they said. Because, see, ever since Mary bore Jesus, the accusation that had dogged Jesus Christ his whole life was that Mary 
had had an affair with Joseph and bore an illegitimate son. That was the accusation, all right? Virgin birth, yeah. And so this was always, you know, in the background. And now they just flat out come and accuse him of it to his face. Hey, we were not born of fornication, it says in John 8. We have Abraham as our father. Abraham's not your father. Your father's the devil. He was a liar from the beginning, and you're following in his footsteps. He hated the truth. He always hates the truth. He works against the truth, just like you're doing right now. You are of your father, the devil. But back to our text in Matthew 12. Let me read verses 34 and 5 again. He said to them, brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Listen, verse 35, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. And I believe in verse 35, the Lord now broadens his focus to not only include the Pharisees, I think he's talking now to the Pharisees and the crowd in general, and in fact, he's basically talking to all humanity. Let me just say this to you. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Those with good or pure hearts, and those with evil or corrupt hearts. In other words, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those with redeemed hearts and those with fallen hearts. And what identifies the kind of heart a person has, at least in part, are the words that come out of their mouth. And Jesus goes on to say here, a person's eternal judgment will depend on what kind of heart each person has when they stand before God on the day of judgment. He said in verse 36, But I say to you, that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. The word idle there is a Greek word that could be translated careless or useless. But don't misunderstand, it's not careless in the sense of harmless. In fact, much to the opposite of that, the Greek word carries the idea of a, a baseless and malicious accusation or assertion. One uh, Greek scholar paraphrased the words of Jesus this way. He said, But I assure you, when God comes to judge all people, at that time everyone will have to explain to him why they said every word they spoke which did harm. And then he went on to finish the section in verse 37 by saying, For by your word you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You know, that's a very sobering statement, a very important statement. Jesus is clearly saying here that God will judge every person's heart, and the heart is the issue. The words are only indicators of what's going on in the heart. The heart is the real issue that he is talking about here. And Jesus is clearly saying that God will judge every person's heart, listen, by the words that came out of their mouths, because the words that come out of our mouths are the truest test as the condition of our heart, whether it's good or evil, whether it's redeemed or still fallen. In that day, the day of judgment, evil hearts will be condemned and those people will be sent to hell. But those who have good hearts, well, I'll let you listen to what Jesus said himself about that. In Matthew 5, verse 8, he said, Blessed are the pure in heart. Or in other words, blessed are those with a good heart. For they, and the Greek is they alone, will see God. Look, if God requires a pure, in other words, a good heart to get into heaven, the question is, how do we cleanse our hearts of sin? 
I mean, that is something that people who are conscious of God, who believe in God, and who even go to church thinking that that's how they draw closer to God, and that's not a bad thing to do if it's a good church and teaching you the Word of God. Uh, if it's a church that's just given you empty rituals and ceremonies and all these other things as a way to reach God through all your religious works, then it's a problem. But a lot of people who do believe in God and are very conscious of the fact that there is a heaven and there is a hell, and they want to go to heaven someday, of course, they've been taught all their lives that to get to heaven, you have to be what? Good. you got to be good. Now, I'm not saying that you should be bad. We're already bad. We have a fallen heart, and it demonstrates itself in the bad things we do every day. Even religious people, they try to mask that with, you know, a veneer of religiosity, but it comes through. That fallen heart comes through in the way we think, the way we talk, and in the way we act. And so people that are conscious of God and heaven ask themselves, well, how can I be a better person? How can I cleanse my heart? Because God only lets people with pure hearts into heaven. So how can I cleanse my own heart? Well, the Bible makes it very clear. and Most people are totally uh, oblivious to this truth. God's word makes it very clear that man is helpless. Listen, man is helpless to cleanse his own heart. Listen to what Solomon said in Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. And the implication is, of course, no one. No one can say, I have cleansed my own heart. I am pure now from all sin. Not true. No man can say that. No woman can say that. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23, Jeremiah asks the question, can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Or... Can the leopard change its spots? Actually, God is saying this to Jeremiah. Then God says, then you, that's possible. It's possible for a person to change the color of their skin or a leopard to remove the spots from their bodies. Then God says, then it's possible for you to do good who are accustomed to doing evil. But the idea is, it's not possible. It's not possible. We are powerless to change what we are. We're powerless to change our nature. That's the idea. Okay, I can modify my behavior. But I can't change my nature. I don't have the ability to cleanse my own heart, to give myself a, a new heart with a new nature. It's not possible. And that's the problem with religion. People think, well, I can do it through religion. I can, think it, I can do it by going to church and lighting the candles and praying the rosary. As a Catholic, I believed all that stuff at one point. And a lot of people today are pursuing religious works and things as a basis for you know God accepting them because as they do these things, they believe that their sins will be eradicated. Look, the more good things I do, I've got to put those good things on the one side of the scale. And of course, if my good outweighs the bad in the day of judgment, I get into heaven. They don't realize that to get into heaven, you have to be perfect. And nobody's perfect. Not in and of themselves, at least. But man tries. He tries to achieve perfection, a pure heart, by going to church and keeping the, the, the rules of his religion. But as we have said many times before, guys, religion at its best only surface cleanses a person's life but does nothing to touch their heart. It can't. And the supreme example of this was the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees who spent all their time with religious works and keeping laws and rules and so on because they believed that was cleansing themselves from sin and earning a place in heaven someday. And Jesus said to them in Matthew 23, guess what? 
You guys are like whitewashed tombs. That's what your religion has done for you. It's given you the illusion that you're all white and clean and pure and holy, but inside, just like a tomb, you're full of all kinds of deadness, uncleanness, defilement. See, in those days, if you didn't know this, around the feast days, when pilgrims would come from all over the known world to Jerusalem for these feasts, some of them had never been to Jerusalem their whole life. This was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. They have saved up enough money to we'll say, go to the Passover in Jerusalem. That was the dream of every Jew to observe at least one Passover in their lifetime in Jerusalem. And here you are, right? You've saved your whole life. You've got the money. You're on your way to Jerusalem. And what happens if you had inadvertently, not knowing the area, the terrain, uh, walked over a tomb? You'd be defiled. You couldn't keep the Passover. So to keep that from happening, they used to whitewash the tomb so that people would see from a distance what that was and they would avoid it. That became a very apt, though, illustration of the Pharisees, whose religion had kind of washed them clean on the outside, quote-unquote, but it left the heart untouched. Because religion cannot touch the heart. It, it just can deceive you into thinking you're right with God because, you know, you baptize and this and that and go to church but it's really all a deception religion is a deception and that's why when Jesus came with the truth the Pharisees hated him that's why they persecuted him and that's why they wound up working together with the Sadducees to kill him because he came against religion you know what man is not against religion Satan does some of his best work through religion man is against righteousness true righteousness although he wouldn't say that because true righteousness is a righteousness that can only come from God, which we appropriate through faith. It has nothing to do with our religious works, how much we go to church, how many candles we light. But see, if your whole life has been devoted to all those religious works, and somebody comes to you and says, oh, that, that, that's all meaningless, that won't get you anything. Just receive Christ right now as your Lord and Savior. Um, a lot of religious folks are not real happy about that message because they've spent a lot of time, a lot of effort in earning their righteousness, even though they have not earned anything. So listen, if we can't purify our own hearts, I mean, even through religious works, ceremonies, rituals, and so on, and if only those who have a pure heart are going to see God someday, in other words, spend eternity with him in heaven, well, then the question becomes then, if I need a pure heart to get to heaven and I can't do it, then how can I get one? All right, where do I go? Okay, if I need one, I can't do it, then where do I go to get a pure heart? Well, even in the Old Testament, David answered that question. In Psalm 51, David said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Listen, create in me a clean heart. Who? Oh God, David understood he did not have the capacity to cleanse his own heart. You know, when we come to the New Testament, we read in Acts chapter 19 as uh, I believe it was um, Paul and Barnabas were talking about how God was saving Gentiles. And at one point they say he was, he was purifying their hearts by faith. That's how you get a pure heart. You've got to put your faith in Christ. 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, He, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, 
And I'm sure most of you know this. The only way we can receive a pure heart is to get a new heart. Right? I mean, didn't God say to the prophet Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked? So God doesn't even bother with it. He just gives you a brand new one. He just transplants a new heart in you with new desires. A desire to draw close to him, to be in the word, to come to church. I mean, before, I had religion before I got saved. I had religion. I didn't have a relationship. No, I thought I had a relationship, but what I had was religion. And when I had religion, I went to church, I lit the candles, and I did all kinds of things, not because I really looked forward to doing those things or, or really enjoyed, you know, that was a high point of my week, you know, going to church and lighting candles and stuff. I did that because that's what you do if you want to get right with God. And that's what religion does. Religion basically comes from a Latin word that means an obligation, a duty. I did my duty. All right? I wasn't, you know, excited about it, but I did it. Once you give your heart to Christ, Jesus gives you a new heart with new desires. Now, I love to come to church and fellowship with all you guys. I love to read the Bible. I love to uh, sing praises to God. I love to attend prayer meetings and, and pray and lift others up. I didn't do any of that before I got saved. Okay? That's the difference between religion, obligation, duty, and relationship. Not that I have to go to church. I get to go to church. It's not that I have to read the Bible. I get to read God's Word. Whole different thing, right? So the only way we can receive a pure heart is to get a new one. The only way to get a new heart is by receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now, once you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, you receive a new heart. And God's Word promises, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation basically means you're not going to hell. You're not going to be judged. Jesus paid the price. Jesus did all the work. And when I receive Him, my sins are washed because of what He did. His blood. There's therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And Jesus Himself said in John 5, He said, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in Him who sent me has everlasting life. Listen. And shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So, all the sins we've ever committed have been nailed to Jesus' cross and taken out of the way, Colossians 2 tells us. Therefore, you know, we're not going to have to answer for every little sin, every idle word. That's all under the blood, right? It's, we've been forgiven for all of it. But let me ask you a question. Does that mean we as Christians can then speak hurtful words against one another with impunity? Well, author William MacDonald, I think, nailed it when he said, in the case of believers... The penalty for careless speech has been paid through the death of Christ. So we're, you know, there, there is no punitive punishment, even for believers who don't watch what comes out of their mouth. But he does say, our careless speech, if unconfessed and unforgiven, will result in loss of reward when we stand before Jesus at the abema seat of Christ, where our rewards are passed out. Look, it's important that we watch what comes out of our mouths. And that's why Paul the Apostle in Ephesians 4.29 he said, let no corrupt word. And you know that word corrupt there in Ephesians 4.29? Same Greek word for idle. 
in Matthew 12. Every idle word, men speak the same idea, corrupt, okay? Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Edification means to build up. In other words, don't speak corrupt words that tear down, but speak wholesome words that build up. One author said, and I quote, How many times has a person said something that perfectly revealed their heart and then said, uh, That's not what I meant? When it was exactly what they meant. Sometimes things fly out of our mouths. And you know what? And I'll just speak for me. My mouth tends to fly open a lot more than I want it to. You know, God help us to think before we talk. You know? So a lot of times Christians say things to others, one another, that they don't really mean to hurt feelings. But just, you know, you don't have to verbalize everything that instantly pops into your head. Okay? Stop for a second and ask yourself, by saying this, is it going to be good or bad? Is it going to help somebody edify, build up, encourage, or is it going to hurt, cut, tear down, whatever? I mean, I hope you realize how powerful words are to either hurt and destroy or to heal and build up. Let me read, uh, I, I could have quoted dozens. I'm just going to pull three right now. Uh, I want to read to you. You can write these down. Proverbs 18:21. Death and life, that's a powerful statement. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Wow. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Who love what? Who love to use their mouths? Who love to talk, all right? Uh, but know this. When you unleash that baby, okay, and remember this, the tongue is so dangerous, it's the only member of your body that comes with its own cage, okay? Yeah. Just think about that for a second, all right? Remember, when you, when you open the door to that baby, you let that lion out. I mean, it's going to do either good or bad depending on the words you decide to use. Now, life and death are in the power of the tongue. If you love to use your tongue, if you love to use your mouth and speak a lot, guess what? You're going to eat the fruit of that. In other words, if you are, say, edifying things that build people up, the fruit is going to be good. It's going to be wonderful, you know? You're going to be called an encourager. Oh, that's a blessing. I love to be around that person. Man, they just encourage my heart. You like to shoot your mouth off and rip people apart and tear them up? Well, you're going to eat the fruit of that too. And it's not uh, very pleasant. The life and death are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. James 3, even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest, a little fire kindles. You can set a whole forest on fire with one little match. A whole church could be destroyed with just a little statement or accusation against the right person. The tongue is a fire, James says, a world of iniquity. It is an unruly evil full of deadly Poison. Wow. Proverbs 12.18 There is one who speaks like the piercing of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. Husbands and wives, can I really get you to think about this one? There is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. Good things. You know, there's a lot of Christian marriages that have been destroyed. I mean, they're falling like crazy today. The uh, world, yeah, the world is definitely... I'm just talking about the church now. 
So a lot of marriages have been destroyed. And they haven't been destroyed through any one sin like adultery or something like that. It's usually death by a thousand cuts. Just an accumulation of unkind words. You know, nobody knows you better than your spouse. Nobody knows you, your secrets, your weaknesses. Nobody can point out and hit you right where you need to be hit verbally to hurt you the most than a spouse. And if you use that knowledge of your spouse when you're angry, will you put together words and statements that go right to their most vulnerable point? You're going to do some real damage. And if you do that enough, you're going to start cutting your marriage so badly that it will be on healing at one point and will eventually die. Stop and think. Don't fire back out of anger. Stop. Let the Spirit take control. A kind word turns away what? Anger or wrath. Honey, let's stop right now. This is only going a bad place. Let's not go there. Let's stop. Let's pray. I was wrong. I pushed the wrong button. I know it. And I'm sorry. Let's sit down and talk. Let me just say this as we bring this to a close. The psalmist said in Psalm 64, verses 2 and 3, he said, Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity, who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows. And the psalmist says those arrows are bitter words bitter words I hope you all realize that bitter hateful words are like arrows that once fired cannot be recalled you can say I, I didn't mean that but once it leaves your mouth it's out there alright they're like arrows that once fired cannot be recalled and once lodged in the heart of another will continue to cause pain sometimes for many years to come. When you were younger, um, you know, maybe in elementary school or maybe a bully was picking on you or somebody that, uh, you know, just picking on you and things like that, and it hurt, okay? Their words hurt. You went home and you said to your mom or your dad, you know, here's what's going on. This person is saying this. And mom and dad meant well, okay? And what do they usually tell you? Sticks and stones. Just tell that person, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Now, I don't know about you, but that never seemed to really help me. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, my mom and dad, they meant well. As I've gotten older, I realized that, you know, mom and dad would sometimes give advice and things, and they, but it wasn't really always accurate, Okay. Look, uh, I'm not minimizing the damage done by sticks and stones. I mean, <laughs> nails you with a stick or a stone, that hurts. And, you know, it can cause some serious damage. Usually, though, you will heal. But an unkind word spoken at the right moment, man, that can lodge in a person's heart and continue to cause much pain for many years. I have personally counseled with people over the years that are still dealing with the after effects of something that was said to them when they were a kid by a parent or somebody close to them. And they have grown up with that hanging over their head. They just can't get free of it. 
this idea that they were a loser, that they could never do anything right, or whatever their dad or whatever told them. This is a very important subject. It doesn't just affect unbelievers. Yes, Jesus was speaking to Pharisees primarily, but he turned to really all of us and said, look, what's going on in your heart? I mean, what do you gravitate to? Do you gravitate to those who are evil and speak evil things? Because if so, that indicates where your heart is at. But if you're a Christian, what about that? I mean, what's coming out of your mouth? And I say this to myself, too. Look, you can always gauge where you are with the Lord at any given time by what's coming out of your mouth. If you evaluate yourself and say, you know, lately everything out of my mouth is critical, judgmental, hurtful, cutting. You know what? Let me say this to you. It indicates you are not really walking with the Lord. Well, you should. You're not abiding in Christ. Because if you were, the character of Jesus would be coming through. It would manifest itself in the way you, first of all, talk to people and about people. And conversely, if you can look at your life and say, you know, God has really been helping me. He has really been leading me to people that need to be encouraged or um, are hurting, and he's able, he's been able to use me to encourage them. God bless you, you know. Paul the Apostles in Galatians 6, if you're really spiritual, now you just think you're spiritual, or say you're spiritual. If you're really spiritual, when somebody, a brother or sister, stumbles and falls, you're not going to stand over them with a condemning finger pointing at them and going, you are a loser. You're a, you know, look at me, I would never have done something like that. You don't do that. You're really spiritual. You stoop down. You help pick them up by encouraging them, by telling them, look, I've, I've been there. God's been very good to me. I mean, come on. Let's get up now. It's over with. You've confessed it to God. Don't lay here and let the devil condemn you. Come on. Let's walk together. Let's get right back walking with the Lord. That's a spiritual person who does that. That's why in Proverbs 10, verse 19, again, Solomon said, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. God, help us to t- listen more and talk less. Okay? Uh, in a multitude of words, sin is not lacking. The more you talk, the greater chance you're going to be sinning with your mouth. But he who restrains his lips is wise. And I'll give you one more scripture this morning. Colossians 4, 6, where Paul said, Let your speech always be with grace. Listen, seasoned with salt. Interesting. That you may know how you ought to answer one another. I understand this. Let your speech always be with grace. I understand that. Seasoned with salt? What does that mean? Well, Paul was a rabbi. And the rabbis knew that the offerings that were given to God, the animals, were first sprinkled with salt. And what he is saying is, let everything that comes out of your mouth be an offering to God, something that you won't be ashamed to present to him, something that he will be pleased with. Everything out of your mouth, let it be a pleasing sacrifice to him in a sense. Where you speak good words, kind things. Oh, that doesn't mean that once in a while... You may not have to reprove or rebuke a brother or a sister in sin that will not get their life right with God. But that's a last resort, and you don't revel in it, you don't enjoy it, but you do it out of love. But for the most part, let your speech be something that God says, hey, that's good. That's maturity. That's true spirituality. 
You're building up. You're encouraging. You're bringing health to people's hearts by your words are like a balm. All right? This is an important subject. May God give us the grace. I'm just speaking for myself because, you know, God has helped me over the years, but this mouth of mine would just fly open all the time and I would say a lot of things that I regretted. And God has taught me to, you know, think a little bit before you speak. My, my prayer has always been, Lord, put a guard over the door of my mouth. It's like David prayed, right? Because God, I have a tendency to, you know, just shoot my mouth off and regret it. And so, may God give us grace, all right? Because this doesn't just apply to unbelievers, you know. But it does affect all of us who are Christians. That God would give us grace to use the words of our mouths to be good things. We're living in tough times. More than ever before, the body of Christ needs to encourage each other. Pray for one another. Not criticize, condemn, judge. But stoop down, lift up those who have stumbled. And uh, be an encouragement. May God help us to do that. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your grace, your kindness toward us. How patient you are. How you stoop down always, Lord, to pick us up. And encourage us now to go forward. And so, Lord, we just thank you. We ask, Lord, that you would help us now to be men and women whose speech is not ever corrupt, coarse, or cutting, but that, Lord, our speech would be seasoned with salt, full of grace, imparting health and encouragement and healing to those who need it. We just thank you, Lord. Father, give us each grace this week to look at ourselves honestly, to really evaluate what's been coming out of our mouths lately. Because whatever's been coming out of our mouths indicates the condition of our heart, where we are with you. So, Lord, we ask that you would convict us and um, give us grace to draw close to you, that the words out of our mouth would be pleasing to you. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.